Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. My name's Simon Carley and I'm going to be taking you through the interesting things we've been doing in November 2018 on the blog. And we're going to kick off in New York. New York with Natalie May, who was attending the FIX conference, the Feminem conference. It's her second post around this and there's four coming out, so you can go through all of those. Quite a lot of detail in there. I'm just going to pick out a couple of highlights, really. There was a lot about leadership. There was a lot about motivation, about how to behave. And I think that was a really important thing. There's a nice one kicking the blog post off from Jennifer Walthall talking about how when you go into an organization, it may not necessarily hold all the values that you have. And you have choices. You have choices about whether you act inside the system to improve it or whether you just sort of fight from the outside. I thought she was quite interesting. There's some points there that Natalie's put in about how it's important to influence from the inside. And you do have to some extent sort of you know, if you've got jerks working in your department, you have to get on with them. But once you're embedded in that department, you can then change, you know, choose a hill to die on, choose something which is really important to you, make it happen. And then when you've done that, move on to the next things. And none of us are going to be in perfect systems. We can't all do everything as quickly as we want to do, but do what you can when you can, a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. There's a lot more about leadership. Uh, Laura Goldstein talked about four things that make a good leader. Uh, listen, Little things add to become larger things. I think that's really important, particularly when you're a junior going into a leadership role. You don't necessarily see that the time horizon to make changes happen can be quite long. And we, I think we often underestimate how much we can achieve in a long period of time. Something Peter Brindley told us, again, on the recently on the podcast. We've got to respect you know, all of those things around gratitude, kindness and decency, which you know, are really important and get good at conflict management because, quite frankly, not everybody's going to like you and you have to deal with that. You can't, you can't appease everybody all the, all the time because you're not going to be a great leader. Lots more on negotiation, lots more on leadership, lots more about equity and equality. And I think there's, it's, it's worth reading the blog. I, I'm not going to reiterate the whole damn thing here, but go and have a look at what Natalie's written. And if you can get to an fix in 20, well, it'll be 2019, I think you should. It sounds like a really interesting conference and it's one of my list of places which I'm really interested in getting to. We then had Dan Horner doing one of our Journal Club posts on the Polar Trial. The Polar Trial is a big randomised control trial looking at hypothermia in the early stages after brain injury. And this comes on the back of things like the Eurotherm trial, which we blogged about, which was a use of hypothermia in patients who got severe brain injury on the ICU who are not recovering. And it sort of level, tier three, I think, management, they call it. This is different. This is about patients who come to the emergency department or are in pre-hospital care with suspected serious brain injury. So GCS9 or less, like to or imminently or have already undergone RSI. And what they did is they randomised patients into either cooling them uh, down to 33 to 35 or keeping them normothermic for 72 hours. And it's interesting. There's a lot of pathophysiological evidence out there that hypothermia should be a good thing. And it really is. I mean, if you do things to rats and stuff, it really is apparently a good thing. But we seem to have failed to demonstrate a massive difference in, in all sorts of circumstances, you know, cardiac arrest and, as I say, in the Eurotherm trial. But in this one, they've got 511 patients. They've randomised them to the two groups, followed them up for six months and looked at the Glasgow outcome score. And they've not found any difference. Now, this at first look really does suggest that getting patients cooler down to 33 to 35, which has its own problems on the ICU, is not a great idea. Um, I was at a conference recently, the ICS conference, where people were talking about, well, actually, in a lot of these trials, we do need to follow them up to a year. Um, to work out whether or not there will in fact be a benefit. And it may be that we get more data here. But at the moment, it would seem that doing hypothermia routinely for patients in the early stages of their disease out with a, cr a clinical trial 
probably is not to be advocated. But it is a good trial. It's published in JAMA. There's lots of interesting things in there. Go and have a look in the detail. And as, as I always say with the general, the journal club posts, don't just believe what I say. Get out there and do your own critical appraisal. Read the paper properly and see what you think. We then went to a really interesting post from our friend Zaf Kasim, who trained here in Manchester, but now works over in the US, really developing a name for himself as a resuscitationist, and in particularly around invasive techniques such as ECMO and advanced techniques in resuscitation. So he's a really interesting guy and he's working in a different health economy. I appreciate that. But he's talking about his experience of now using whole blood. And this is really interesting because whole blood is, you know, it's, it's what we should be replacing in trauma. If you think about it, patients lost whole blood, give whole blood back would make a lot of sense. But of course, we don't do that because certainly in the UK, we separate blood into its components so that it can be used in different ways. And when we're transfusing in major trauma, we give pack cells first and then we follow that up with platelets and FFP. And now there's work around cryoprecipitate as well. But we don't often manage to achieve that very early. That's that's the real problem. So although we try and achieve one to one to one um, ratios, as we as indicated by the proper trial, again you can have a look at that on the blog and the critical appraisal. We don't do that very early, and it often takes quite a bit of time for the FFP and for the CRP to come along. So Zaf's put a really good argument on here about why we should be using whole blood as opposed to using. Um, just blood components and trying to reconstitute them really in the body, which if you think about it and take a step back is a bit bizarre. Now, this isn't something that I think we can do routinely in the UK, although my understanding, um, again, at a recent conference is that I think London Hems are now starting to try and use whole blood. Might be wrong about that, so don't quote me on it, but I think they're definitely moving in that direction. And when I was in Europe recently, some of our European colleagues are using whole blood as well. So maybe everything will come backwards and we'll go back to what we were doing back in the Second World War in Vietnam and stuff like that, where whole blood transfusions were used. And we didn't see some of the complications that we see now from trauma and from transfusion. So kind of watch this space. And I think we're going to hear a little bit more from Zaf as the data starts to come in about this. And I think it is a really interesting area. We know that transfusion, we know that fluid replacement in trauma is a real problem, causes as many difficulties. And it may be a way for us to further reduce that mortality in this very, very sick, unwell group of patients who require immediate transfusion. And you'll also find a little bit of discussion on there about choosing when to start major transfusion protocols, because that's still not a perfect science. It's still quite a difficult thing to do. We're then back to Natalie May and her presentation, or one of her presentations from FIX. And it's a really interesting one. It's quite, it's quite challenging, actually. Um, about the use of the word sexy in clinical medicine and particularly in resuscitation related specialties such as ours because I'm, I'm sure we've all heard people and quite frankly I bet many of us who are listening to this including myself will have used the term in association with things which if you take a step back are really quite bizarre I mean people I hear say oh you know thoracotomies that's really sexy really that is weird if you take a look at it. And Ollie, who is uh, Natalie's husband, a uh, great friend, really nice guy. I think he, we should attribute the quote to him. I think it is from him, pretty certain it is, that anybody who thinks a thoracotomy is sexy is doing pretty much the sex. Thoracotomy, well, they're, they're at least doing one of those really, really wrong. And that's kind of funny and it makes a joke. But what Natalie goes into is the fact that behind that is a whole um, lack of understanding about the association of this word with other things that go on in medicine. 
particularly around gender issues, which is obviously a theme of the theme of the fixed conference. And I invite you to go and have a look at this, particularly for the sort of person who looks at it and goes, oh, well, it's just having a laugh. I think we need to go and have a think about it. And it's certainly something which is being pushed out of the the sort of the general banter in in my department and i think it is one of those words which we do need to step back and if you need to use ollie may's quote and the thoracotomy to 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 move it on that's fine but do go and have a look at natalie's blog because the background to this and the sexualization of women in the workplace and all of those things which relate to this are actually fascinating. It's not a compliment. It's not a good thing. And it's not something we should be doing. And I, I've kind of definitely got that now. So go and have a look at that and have a think. We've then got a really interesting post on our med ed theme, which, of course, has been running through St. Emlyn's for a long period of time. And it's the first blog post from Nick Smith. Now, Nick Smith is a clinical educator here in Manchester. I've known him for many years super guy really fantastic very very clever educator and brilliant with technology as well so he's done a lot of the stuff with us um, for St Emlyn's Live but he's talking through this idea around cognitive load theory which is something that's banded around a lot and we talk about bandwidth and we talk about load and all those kind of things I think this really summarizes it very nicely in a small amount of time and in particular from the perspective of us being tutors and understanding that we need to have an appreciation of what the cognitive load of our learners are when we're talking about them and nick sort of goes through the theory talks about intrinsic load extrinsic load and the germane load which is really interesting and i think if you are an educator and you're interested in this concept whether it's around simulation whether it's around resuscitation or education i think you definitely need to go and have a look at that and we're going to put that into our series we've put quite a few blogs up now around different educational theories that you should know and i think if you go to the menus in st emily's you can go through those and i think we've done probably about 15 maybe even as many as many as 20 now things that we should all know in general i'm not actually a theorist i mean i've been tested i'm not a theorist but there are certain things which really help us understand why sometimes education works why sometimes it doesn't and in particular how we can maximize it then oh gosh we were busy in november weren't we 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 got a, a another guest blog from claire bromley claire bromley's a medical student works with us here in manchester and she went and spent some time for her elective out at Mitchell's Plain with the Baddie M people, in particular Katia Evans and Craig Wiley, who looked after absolutely fantastically. And Craig and Kat are great friends of ours at St. Emlyn's. They, they work with the rest of the Baddie M team to do some amazing work out there. I often think that St. Emlyn's is sort of the, the UK, maybe European version of what they've done out there. And, and it's great stuff, and you'll know the conference, and you'll know that that's another fabulous place that you should consider going. This blog also goes on from the ones which uh, Robert Lloyd did about his experiences in in, in Kailicha, which is just around the corner from Mitchell's Plain, and also Chris Wearmouth, who talked about working more in a GP rural setting in South Africa, but from a UK perspective. And Claire's post talks about the incredible opportunities out there for learning, for interaction, and the and the wonderful people that she works with. But she also talks about the difficulties of converting her experiences from the UK into that setting, which is particularly stressed at time and underfunded and, and under-supported in terms of just the, the clinical workloading compared to what can be done. I think I took a lot of um, out of this and in particular, it reinforced my incredible respect really for the people who work in South Africa in emergency medicine um, in the public sector because it is incredibly challenging. 
I think I would rarely recommend this blog post, well, to anybody, but in particular to those who are considering working in other health economies about the experience of of what that feels like, and also um, those who are advising them. So it's not just a case of getting on a plane and going somewhere else. You do need to be prepared. You do need to understand and you need to be respectful. All of those things which Claire was. I think there are some great lessons there. And of course, it's always great to catch up with the Baddy M team who do amazing things. We then got another post from Natalie on Feminem, uh, more reflections from Fix, um, talking about various different things, including more about um, LGBT issues and how we see, understand and experience diversity in the emergency department. And I'm a real advocate for understanding this because... The ED is one place where we see an incredibly diverse population. We see everybody. And that doesn't happen in most other units. I mean, my wife's an ophthalmologist and she doesn't see anything like the diversity that we do. Ophthalmology is predominantly a disease or a set of diseases which predominantly occur in the aged. And they just don't see the sort of stuff that we do. And we have great opportunities to do fantastic things, to promote diversity, to understand it and to to gain equality. And we also have potential harms that we can do things not intentionally, but we can get it wrong. So I think there's some really interesting insights into there about gender, about disability, about sexual um, orientation. I, I I recommend this. And I think it's an area which really should be a core part of all, all our curricula. And it sometimes depresses me when I go and I do some other work, which I, I won't discuss exactly what it is here, but a lot of my work does involve determining whether we are managing equality and diversity issues well and often when I speak to junior doctors and senior doctors their definition and understanding of of diversity is ethnicity and it really goes very really nowhere beyond that and I find that really difficult because diversity is is much broader than that and this is in the blog and you should you should read this and and think about different ways that we think about diversity and we as emergency physicians are exposed to this and we need to have an understanding so that we can do the best that we can for what is a very you know an interesting population then i've got a little post up there on learning in the social age this was a blog post to support a presentation i did up in scotland when i was joining the emerge 10 conference now the emerge group in edinburgh are arguably well certainly one of the best research groups in the uk without a shadow of a doubt there are quite a broad group of people looking at pre-hospital care, looking at cardiac arrest, looking at um, biomarkers, looking at cardiac disease. They're doing just incredible work. And it was really a celebration of their 10 years since they started. It's quite a big organisation now with a really impressive track record in research. And some of the names you'll you'll know through cardiac research and things like that. So I was talking about learning in the social age. It's a topic which we talked about before, um, really a mixture of why the way that we learn is changing with the internet, with social media, and also an understanding of how that's changing, how we should interact as learners and how it's also going into this concept of medutainment and competing now as an educator, not just with the with the students or with the the teachers in your department, but actually on a global scale. It was really good fun to do. It was really good fun to meet the people up there. It was made incredibly welcome. And you can have a look at the theories there. It will cover some of the points which we've touched on frequently on the blog because that's kind of what we do. But it's uh, it was nice to do a bit of a refresher. And there's some new little interesting uh, information on there that you can have a look at. 
And then finally, we finished November with a highlight for me and for everybody, really. And that's the release of the blog, the podcast and the videos for Salem Rizzi from the Rebel M podcast and blog on Beyond ALS. And this was his presentation they did at St. Temlin's Live about how we need to think really deeply about how we manage cardiac arrest patients. And the ALS protocols are fantastic. I'm not going to say anything against those, but there are cases, the special circumstances, the prolonged arrests, the difficulties and the, the challenges about the evidence base for some of the things that we do, you know, thinking about adrenaline and is it or is it not a good thing? So this for me was a really good Uh, summary and update for where we are with advanced life support and where we might be going and perhaps when you're in the circumstances in the research room when things aren't going as you would hope then how we can challenge our current protocols and maybe adapt and adjust and several of the lessons which Salim talks about here have been transferred into our practice. He talks about elements such as how do you give adrenaline? If you're choosing to give adrenaline, how do you do that? How do you reduce um, shock pauses? How do you get intravenous or intravascular access? And this to me was a real, it was a real session around making sure that you manage everything as well as you can. Sort of the marginal gains aspect of, of ALS management. So if you're serious about your ALS, if you want to do it as well as you possibly can, I think this is arguably one of our best blogs presentations and podcasts that you can listen to this year so dive into that have a listen and see what you think so that takes us to the end of november it was a really busy and exciting interesting month we've got loads more in december hope you have a wonderful lead up to christmas we will see you all soon have a great one bye just before you go we've got a small favor to ask since 2012, we've funded the blog and the podcast and everything around it from our own funds. And it's been great. We've really enjoyed doing it. But the blog and the podcast have grown. And now we've got such bandwidth and such people contacting us from around the world and listening that it's actually starting to get quite expensive. So if you feel like you can contribute even a tiny amount, then just whiz onto the blog, look on there, and you can make a small donation or even subscribe on a regular basis. Even a small amount of cash might make a big difference and help us keep St. Emlyn's free open access medical education. Thank you for your time.